welcome to the Polygamer Podcast, where gaming is for everyone. Join us as we expand the boundaries of the gaming community. Today I'm speaking with Mr. Mike Robles, Community Manager at Take This, contributor to Lady Planeswalker Society, formerly of Lone Shark Games. You may know him from the internet and a variety of other positions and titles. Hello, Mike. Hi. Man, you are busy. I, I, I never stop. That's, that's my problem. I never stop. I'm always, I'm always doing things. Is it a problem, though? You seem to lead a pretty hmm. interesting life. I do, I do, and it's like you joked, uh, and I have this on my Twitter bio, it's like, you may remember me from such games as Killer Instinct, Minecraft, Age of Empires, I even did Solitaire, Microsoft Solitaire, uh, Magic the Gathering, Dungeons and Dragons, now I'm doing a bunch of stuff for Lady Planeswalkers, and TakeThis.org, all while prepping to be a stay-at-home father. When you say you did Minecraft and Solitaire, what does that mean? Uh, you know, I worked with some of those uh, some of those groups, those communities. I spent a lot of time on solitaire, looking at Facebook pages and trying to figure out if there's like a a friend of mine, Helen, uh, who is now over on Minecraft as well. I uh, found that there was like a competitive Minecraft or not Minecraft solitaire community, uh, which is very interesting. So you know, it's just basically updating Facebook pages, doing your typical social media buzz. Posting stuff on Facebook, Twitter, getting ready. Uh, I don't know if you remember, but not too long ago it was Solitaire's like 25th anniversary. And like even Jimmy Fallon had like a big thing about it. We had this big giant event within Microsoft to celebrate it. Uh, so, you know, stuff like that, especially with Minecraft. Minecraft, uh, we worked a lot. We streamed a lot uh, over on Microsoft Studios. They still stream, actually, I think three days a week. They stream Minecraft. Uh, and we were always showing off new content, uh, with skins, stuff like that. So that was all in your role as a community coordinator at Microsoft. Correct, yeah. Isn't having a solitaire community a bit of an oxymoron? <laughs> right? That was a, yeah, it, exactly. It's, it's very much that. So you have, as I just mentioned, worked at Microsoft, Wizards of the Coast, Lone Shark Games. Uh, you're also involved with what is Unexpected Productions? Uh, yes, uh, it was. I'm taking a little break from there. Unexpected Productions is an improv group here in Seattle, uh, and I quickly found uh, a very good home in the improv community out here. Uh, in fact, uh, Unexpected Productions led me and some friends to start a separate group called Nerdprov, where we specialize in a nerdy uh, improv. So I've done a ton of stuff for Unexpected Productions. actually helped them launch their social media in addition to being a performer with them. I love those guys. Those guys were like my first, my first family when I moved up here. So as an improver, you are somebody who thinks quickly on their feet and is often very funny. Uh, usually that's the case. Sometimes not so much. Uh, I notice that it helps a lot with being a community manager, especially when you're highlighting a game and somebody like shows a camera in your face. If there's nobody around for you to grab for whatever reason, you have to think quickly, knowing what to say, what not to say. But improv has definitely helped with my public speaking um, and it's led to a bunch of other gigs. It's led to hosting gigs. Uh, it's what led to me interviewing Stan Lee and it's just been great. That's right. I remember Tifa tweeting about that when you were interviewing Stan Lee on stage, correct? I did, yes. Uh, there was a special screening of, I believe it was the Avengers Age of Ultron for Emerald City Comic Con and uh, I got to do about a half hour with Stan Lee uh, on stage asking him questions that uh, I worked with him on and that was a whole fun story because Tifa and I actually spent probably about 90 minutes with Stan altogether. And that was amazing. That was probably one like that is he always talks about how every con is his last con. And I think he's actually announced that he's like slowing down. So the fact that I got to spend some time with him at one of his last conventions is definitely definitely a life changing experience. So it wasn't just the 30 minutes on stage. You actually got to like hang with Stan Lee. Yeah, yeah. It was crazy. Yeah, we we 
I remember, I'll never forget the email. Uh, there was, there was an email that was like, Hey Mike, we need you to meet you here. Please stand outside this hotel, like wait outside your hotel. Um, and you'll get picked up to take you to the theater. Um, and it was like, you know, Hey, other person on the email, uh, this is Mike, him and his wife Tifa will be riding with you and stand to the theater. And I was like, what? <laughs> I was like, are you, are you kidding me? And like, I, I reread it like three or four times and it was like, they will be riding with you and stand to the theater. And I was like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, we're going to ride in a limo with Stanley. How do I act? Um, and it was, and it was crazy. Cause all of a sudden, uh, I get this phone call the day of, I get this phone call and like, Hey, don't wait in the lobby of the theater because Stan's limo won't fit in the parking like lot. You have to go wait on the street <laughs> and this giant Hummer limo basically rolls up and this door opens and Stan's just right there in the passenger door. And it's like, I guess you guys are coming with us. And it's like, all right, we're picking up whoever. And it's just like, we just hop in. And ride with Stan, uh, ride with him to the theater. And uh, it's it's very funny. Stanley's a machine. I am surprised at how much he gets done for being 93 years old. Uh, and it's it was just it was just such a fun experience. We got to witness uh, like the old man cranky Stanley because he hadn't eaten, which makes sense because he hadn't eaten in like hours and he was like i need food we're getting then we got he got fed and he was the happiest dude in the world uh and then on stage he was trolling me left and right he told me he was like i need you to hold the mic away from you because uh, he's hard of hearing so i essentially have to yell and they were like okay we'll hold the mic sort of out from you so that you're not yelling into the mic but that stan can still hear you and Stan's like yeah make sure you do that and then i start doing that on stage and then stan calls me out on it he's like why are you holding the mic way out there and i was like because you can't hear like what is happening it was good. Stan Stan was very funny. Uh, it was just it was just a great experience overall, and one I'll never forget. So this is Stanley of Marvel Comics, creator of Spider Man, Iron Man, Hulk, Thor, Fantastic Four, Daredevil, and X Men, to main uh, just a few. Just a few. Just a few. Just a few. How, how do you act casual around such a legend? It was not easy at all. There was a moment where Stan was trying to figure out what was happening. Because we were waiting, because we were waiting, we got to the theater a little bit early, and we were trying to figure out what happened. And it was just myself, him, and Tifa sitting in the back uh, in the green room. I was like, "I'm gonna go find out what's going on." And gets up from his chair and leaves. And Tifa and I stare at each other. We're like, "Oh my God, Stan just left. What is happening? Are you supposed to be his handler, or should you follow him?" We, uh, we right, we didn't know. And then all of a sudden, like his publicist comes in, and Tifa and I point. We're like, "Stan walked away. Stan walked away." <laughs> uh, but yeah, it, it was very difficult to act casual. That is for sure. Uh, it was probably one of the hardest things to do. Uh, I had moments of freak out before. Luckily, I had my moments of freak out before interviewing him and before hanging out with him. It was amazing. And remind me how you got this gig, because it wasn't through, I presume, like Wizards of the Coast, Microsoft, Lone Shark Games. No. So because of my improv history, I was friends. I'm friends with some of the guys that run Emerald City Comic Con that I know they are now owned by Read Pop, but... Because of them, they were like, hey, Mike, we know you've done these things before. We have this opportunity that may come up. So what was supposed to happen was it was the Central Cinema at uh, in Seattle. Oh, sorry, the Seattle Cinerama. Seattle Cinerama was doing three night mo- three movies a night, and it was going to be um, Indiana Jones and the Raider, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Scott Pilgrim vs. the World, and the Avengers Age of Ultron. And each night, they were going to have a special guest that I would be interviewing. Uh, so night one was supposed to be Karen Allen from Indiana Jones. Night two, Brandon Routh from Scott Pilgrim. And then night three, Stan Lee. And the guys that were doing, the guys that run Emerald City Comic Con were like, Mike, we know that you've got really good hosting experience. You've done stuff for us before. We think this would be a great opportunity for you. Are you interested? And I was like, let me think about it. Yes, absolutely. 100%. <laughs> 
Karen Allen and Brandon Routh had to drop out. Oh, no. Brandon Routh was filming overseas and couldn't get back in time. The cool thing, cool thing about that was he let me ask me uh, ask my questions over Twitter and he answered them, which I thought was like the coolest thing. He was like, yeah, you go ahead and ask me what you, what you were going to ask me in person, which I thought was super neat. Uh, Karen Allen dropped out like super early, actually. It was, she was one of the first to drop out. Uh, but Stan Lee was still there. And I was like, you know, I'm not mad that I don't get interviewed Karen Allen and Brandon Routh because I still get a half hour with Stan Lee. I, I sent the guys from Emerald City Con, uh, from Emerald City Comic Con, like the biggest thank you note, and I was like, "Thank you so much. This was like, this was the greatest experience," uh, and they were they were they were super happy with it. It was it was a fun time. I mean, all three of those are amazing stars who I oh yeah respect and admire a ton. But it's arguably Stan Lee is the biggest of the three. Yeah, yeah, for and sure. You, and you would think if anybody was going to drop out, it'd be him, not the other two. Right. Exactly. Wow. Well, lucky you, man. Gee whiz. Uh, yeah, it was, it was crazy. It was so crazy. Did you get him to sign anything for you, or would, would that I did. not be professional? No. I, I, they, they were upset that I only brought three things for him to sign. What, if you could, wow, what, what a question for Twitter. If you could have Stan Lee sign any three things, what would it be? I know, right? I was like, I was like this is what I just have on me. So I brought my uh, Avengers Age of Ultron insert, so he signed that. Um, I had purchased a Baby Groot print from one of my favorite artists, Christopher Uminga. Um, I had him sign that. Uh, and then a friend of mine had given me a uh, Doctor Doom poster for him to sign. And I was like, I don't know if I can sign it. Like, you know, I'm kind of doing this like as a favor. And they were like, yeah, that's fine. Go ahead and sign it. And his publicist was like, all you brought were three things. <laughs> and I was like, the dude's been signing all day and hasn't eaten. Like, I don't want to keep him, like, busy. They're like, Stan has to be kept busy. And what do you do with things that Stanley has signed? Do you put them on eBay? No, absolutely not. Are you kidding me? <laughs> My Avengers uh, insert is in its case where it belongs. So when I, whenever I bring it out, I'm like, "Oh, what's this? Oh, it's a Stanley autograph." I'm sorry. Uh, my uh, we have a, if you've seen some of the videos that Tifa and I do uh, on our YouTube channel, YouTube.com/slash Mike and Tifa, we have a wall from that artist that basically has a bunch of his prints, and you can see the Stanley signed group photo in the background. Wow, what a collection! Yeah, what a, what an experience! Yeah, it was it was yeah, it was ridiculous. I loved Whew. it. So you are not only the master of Emerald City Comic Con, but you are also <laughs> the master of the fighting game scene, I understand. Uh, I don't know if master is the right word, but yes, uh, fighting game scene uh, was something I got heavily involved with. I've, I've kind of always been involved. I've been playing fighting games since I was a kid. Uh, and when Microsoft announced that they were going to reboot the Killer Instinct franchise, which was an old arcade game back in 94... Uh, I was stoked uh, because I loved that game when it came out. I started playing a whole bunch of it. I got lucky enough to work on. Micro I got. To, I was working with Microsoft, and then they ended up. My team ended up picking up some of the other titles, which included Killer Instinct. And my boss at the time knew how passionate I was about that game and its community, and so he let me uh, put me on that game. And it was one of the coolest experiences. That community was amazing. Uh, that game was super fun. I did a ton for the game and helped out, uh, and it was just—it was just a blast. It's one of my favorite games. Uh, it still is one of my favorite games, and I loved and respected all of the people I got to work with on that game. So, in your opinion, the new Killer Instinct is a good successor to the original? Oh, Oh, one hundred percent. Yeah. Because I never played the original that much, and I tried getting into the new one on Xbox One. I experienced one of the same challenges I have with almost any modern fighting game, unfortunately, which is that there's too much depth for me and i can't master all the combos well the nice thing about this particular iteration of killer instinct is it has what's called the combo assist which means you can just button mash and execute combos like you were a pro it will do it all for you and it's amazing is that still fun though oh yeah yeah 
<laughs> I assume you didn't take the easy way out, though. Oh, no, that was that was implemented long after I started working on that game. Oh, okay. So this was not when the game launched? No. Oh, so I might not have played that version? Yeah, yeah, you might not have. I don't know when the last time you played it was, but if you if you launch it up now, you'd see that it says combo assist enabled, and it's it's really meant to just sort of get new players in and sort of show them the ropes and just it teaches them knowing to do specific button timings, and then you'll be able to uh, sort of take that from the combo assist into practicing your own combos. I did not know that. I need to give it another try then. <laughs> My bad. Are you, are you active or involved with Evo, which at the time of this airing is next week? Uh, not this year, uh, unfortunately. I love Evo. I got to go last year. Uh, uh, my friends at the uh, my friends Ultra Arcade, which sponsors a team um, and has their own amazing arcade out in Texas, uh, sent me out there uh, to run some social media and to sort of represent them. And Evo is a blast. I highly recommend it for anyone that's involved in the fighting game industry or curious. Even if you go to just to spectate, because the like the atmosphere is insane. Watching all of these high profile fighting games, these matches, the the electrifying crowd, it is uh, it is awesome. And I real I do wish I was going this year, but we're babysitting my brother in law's kids. So we're gonna have a two year old and a five year old running around the house during that weekend. Oh, fun! Yeah, it wouldn't be right for me to leave my wife, my pregnant wife. <laughs> Your very pregnant wife. <laughs> yeah. Remind us what exactly Evo is for those who haven't been. Uh, Evo is the is the biggest fighting game tournament in the world. It is in Las Vegas. It is three days of just crazy madcap fighting. Um, there's fighting games all the way back down to I think Nintendo 64. I think they're still playing Super Smash Brothers in 64. Maybe the GameCube version. I'm not exactly sure. But all walks of life show up there. Uh, it's it's fighting games all day, parties all night because it's Vegas. Uh, and then massive finals. Uh, there's it's starting to get better with. Uh, it's almost becoming like a convention. There's vendors. They're starting to do uh, talks. Uh, I know last year Killer Instinct uh, did a talk there. Uh, a very popular fighting game community YouTuber Maximilian uh, had a a panel there as well. So they're starting to take that a little bit more seriously and bringing in a more uh, more content for people to go and, and see while they're while they're at Evo. So for people who are not interested in being competitive, is it still worthwhile going? I think so. Uh, I think it's really neat because uh, I I'm not that competitive. Like I I'm good at Killer Instinct, but I'm nowhere near pro level. But I had a blast even going there. Uh, I, I scrubbed out really early on. I, I went O two and was done. Uh, but I had such a blast hanging out the other thing is you're just you're there with your community uh you're hanging out with friends when i wasn't playing fighting games i was sitting with friends we were watching matches we were cheering for our favorite players so the atmosphere really really uh sells it and as you mentioned it's for all fighting games all eras all consoles yeah yeah absolutely now you mentioned that it's a pretty fun environment but the gaming community or at least the gaming genre is highly competitive it really is. Uh, you know, so with with every gaming community, you're going to have the competitiveness and the competitive players. And it is still a fun environment because, you know, it is all in good fun. Basically, there's there's really nothing that is too crazy about it. Every ter- every community has its bad apples. Every community has its toxicity. Um, you know, the fighting game community is very included in that. I tend to turn off basically Twitch chat any stream I watch, whether it's Magic, whether it's Fighting Game Community, whether it's Twitch Plays Pokemon, usually my stream chat is turned off because there are going to be those few bad apples. Um, but it's still fun. 
I mean, it's you're in Vegas hanging out with your friends. What can be more fun than that? The only exposure that listeners to this podcast have had previously on episodes of Polygamer were from the director of the documentary GTFO. Oh, yeah. And also, you've seen it, I presume. Yeah, yeah, it's really good. Yeah. And also from Lillian Chen, a Smash Brothers player by the name of Milk Tea. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, Milk Tea had a glowing review of the gaming community, although she does acknowledge it has some problems. What has been your experience? I mean, you talked a little bit about the camaraderie, but when people actually get into the heat of combat, is it really something that someone who's just in it for the love of the game wants to be in? Um, so that's, that's kind of like a fine line because Killer Instinct had an amazing community. I, I dove right in head first, got very involved with the community and it was a small, but super passionate community. Of course, you're going to find those bad apples, but to be honest, like people that were new to the game were still completely welcomed with open arms. And I think that's the goal of a lot of fighting game uh, developers is they're like, we're going to do all we can to make this game accessible to all levels. And it's up to the pros and the sort of influencers and ambassadors of the game to make everyone feel welcome. Not everyone's going to do that because you're going to have your, uh, you know, your old school people that are just like, this is my game. But it's the same way. It's the same thing in D&D, right? Like you've got your old school D&D. Like I only play second edition, you know, and that's all I ever play. So there's no room for this new this new younger generation of D&D fans. But that's that's any game. I honestly think that any community in any game is going to be welcoming. Uh, and that includes the fighting game community. Yeah. Competition can get pretty fierce uh, and you need to be prepared for some harsh words, especially if you're playing any game competitively. Uh, Overwatch is an amazing example. Tifa and I are playing Overwatch a ton all the time. She has no interest in competitive play. She's like, I'm having fun with the game. Competitive play. I'll be playing with people that are taking the game way more seriously. And that's not what I want. I am loving the game. And it's like, I'm ready to take it to the next level. And I started playing, competitive and doing my what's known as pl- uh, placement matches where you, you play 10 matches and then you find out your rank and how well you've done. I had one really great match. I had a horrible match last night where immediately afterwards I got a pretty mean Xbox Live message. And then I had a match today where I did okay, but there was one person on the team that was complaining about everyone, telling them to get good, telling them they suck. And I was just like, that's, that's harsh, man. Like I get, I mean, we still won, but he was still so mean about it. And I was like, that's not, you know, that's, at first, I was like, it's a game, but he was like, well, you shouldn't be playing competitive. And I was like, all right, well, like, I'm going to play competitive, but at least I'm not going to be a dick about it, right? And be like, hey, this is where we need to go. So any game is you're going to find that. You're going to find that level. And, you know, it's just those are people that just take the game a little too seriously. I imagine that this competitiveness is also part of what builds the community because I can't think of any other genre of game that is non-competitive, that has its own conference. I mean, surely there are events out there for first-person shooters, for example, although I can't oh, yeah. name them off the top of my head. I, I can yeah, I can't name them either, but I know there's always... Uh, well, I think there's the ESL League. There's ESL, uh, which uh, showcases Call of Duty. I think they're starting to do more Overwatch, but I mean, there are. There, there, there are those competitions and those live streams that have that stuff out there. Right, but I can't think of a, another conference for a genre that is non-competitive. Right, yeah. No, it's it's hard to find. I think you got like your uh, the internationals, right, where you have your Dota and League of Legends stuff. But yeah, I mean, there's nothing as big as big out there as Evo right now. I think maybe the the international stuff is the Dota and League of Legends. I think those rank rank in just like a ton of of attendees. Now, for people who can't get to Vegas, is there some local alternative to competing and collaborating? 
Uh, depends on where you're at. I know a lot of a lot of arcades host their own um, host their own tournaments. There's a bunch of free online tournaments. Killer Instinct offers free online tournaments uh, quite a bit, actually. There's a group called the 8-Bit Beatdown, which hosts a bunch of online tournaments for free. And in fact, the 8-Bit Beatdown partnered with this uh, the company Ultra Arcade, which I talked about earlier. And they're doing they have what's known as the KI World Cup, where if you win, um, you know, the 8-Bit Beatdowns, you can get entry into KI World Cup. And be and be qualified for it. So there's a ton of places that do that. There's also, you know, like I said, local tournaments. Um, I know Microsoft stores actually every once in a while will host uh, their own tournaments. So it's it's out there. Community is always out there. You just got to know where to find them. In fact, given how easy online tournaments are, and that some games and publishers have even moved away from couch play, I'm surprised that there is such a vibrant in-person scene for this genre. Uh, well, because there's something to be said about online versus offline play. Um, you know, there it's, and you'll, you'll hear that actually, even when uh, certain streamers, uh, or YouTube personalities talk about it, they're like, oh, right. They'll, they'll like do a combo and be like, oh, right. Doesn't work online because there's, you know, a couple of milliseconds of delay, you know, to have the information go, you know, cross country or across the world for whatever reason. And also, like, it's also the thing about a bad connection. Like, if I play someone with a really crappy connection, it's going to be a much different game than if I'm playing against someone that's sitting right next to me. I still miss the days of the Sega Dreamcast with its inbuilt dial-up modem. Oh, yeah, yeah. That, that was the future, man, right there. Did you ever play with the X-Band modem on the Super Nintendo? I did used to have the X-Band modem. I, that was before I learned anything good about competitive play um because <laughs> i rage quit all the time on x-men i just unplug oh, it Mike, like no. i know i was the worst i was not it i took a while to grow up <laughs> when it comes to that you're it's still a pr- in process it's yeah yeah uh and i've like and i've done some some panels with tifa and i was like yeah when i was younger and playing video games i was terrible i said some god-awful things and it was, you know, because that was the community I surrounded myself in because my community wasn't really that diverse. And as I got older and started, like, open my eyes more and started to realize, like, how much of a bigger community that there is, I was like, wow, I was an idiot when I was younger. Was there a turning point for you? Um, You know, I'm not really sure. Actually, there was. There was a turning point for me. That's when I started working at Disneyland. I worked at Disneyland for five and a half years. Uh, and I, I grew up. You know, Southern California, so it's not like I wasn't in, like, you know, middle America, white neighborhood, so I had plenty of diversity around me. Um, but when I worked at Disneyland, you're just, you're surrounded by diversity. It is, it is insane how much diversity is there. And I had so many friends. I hung out with so many different people. Um, and it's one of those things where, like, you slowly start to realize how different the rest of the world is. Cause not everyone that works at Disneyland came from Southern California like me. Not everyone came from, you know, down the street. There are people that moved miles around, you know, it states away even actually just to be like, hey, I now work at Disneyland. Uh, and it was a very interesting experience. And I also worked with a lot of different places within Disney and a lot of different departments. And I got to work some shows. I did Fantasmic. And so I got to meet a lot of the performers and see a lot of the performers backgrounds. So it's that's really like once you've immersed yourself in that world that's basically all about diversity you start to realize how much bigger the world actually is yeah i guess the disneyland for me was when i went to college because my high school was a private catholic school going to college was a big eye-opener now certainly there are some kinds of diversity that both college and disneyland can't expose you to like class for example you know you still have to be able to pay to get into disneyland in the first place right but still a, a lot more diversity than i was accustomed to right yeah 
So we're going to be talking about the Lady Planeswalker Society, which is sort of an onboarding community for Magic the Gathering. Is there anything like that for fighting? How do you recommend people get started? Oh, man, you know, there isn't, but I think that'd be something that'd be really interesting to uh, to try. A lot of fighting games have their own sort of tutorial, but I've never seen sort of like, I guess I guess it would be considered the, it'd be a dojo, right? Um, there isn't anything that I've seen that's like that where it's like, hey, come learn. Um, like to come and come play in this group and learn. But I think that's something that would go huge and be extremely well received in the fighting game community. Cause I think there are people that want to play these games, but are too scared because of the, uh, the barrier to entry, be it, be it, you know, the pro scene, online play, paying two, $300 for a fight stick or an Xbox one or anything like that. Um, but I think that'd be something if, if it was like, Hey, come on down to this place. We've got a bunch of fight sticks. We've got a bunch of copies of the game. Let's all play together. We'll run like, and we'll we'll teach you to play. We'll teach you the basics or whatever. I think that that's something that would be a welcome need in the fighting game community. Because you just bring up something else that we haven't touched upon, which is the hardware used in fighting games. If you really yeah. want to go pro, you have to invest quite a bit of money in a really quality joystick. Uh, yeah, actually, I mean, joysticks have come down quite a bit in some price. Uh, Mad Cats make some amazing sticks. Uh, I mean, they're still two hundred bucks, but you're looking at someone that wants to get into Street Fighter Five. Uh, actually, I think it's playable on PC now too. But for a while, before Killer Instinct came out on Windows Ten, if you wanted to get into Killer Instinct, you were looking at three, four hundred dollars for an Xbox One, plus another two hundred dollars for uh, a fight stick, and then you know to buy the full game was another fifty bucks uh, for one game to learn to go pro in one game. Yeah, that's not something everybody can do. No, not at all. Because <laughs> you can invest that much money in a lot of games instead of just going in-depth in one. Yeah. I did want to ask your opinion on Street Fighter V. You just mentioned that. And yeah. it's gotten mixed reviews because it seems, as I mentioned, <sighs> to be moving away from couch play. There's a lot of online content and not much for the single player. Uh, there is, yeah. Uh, and they... Yeah, that's that's a whole fun fun thing that happened. Uh yeah, they Street Fighter Five came out and they were like, "Hey, here's this sort of base game," and then they realized, "Oh, we still need all of these things." Well, we'll bring that out later. Like the game dropped a few months ago, and I think just this week or last week they dropped the like the cinematic story mode and two new characters. And it's like we took this long to get a story mode, but yeah, they they are also doing uh you know online i mean most games have their online play which is great but they they have their online play you can still play couch co-op a buddy of mine comes down every once in a while uh, and we'll play together uh just on the couch i actually prefer playing street fighter 5 uh in person with friends because i'm not that great at the game and i get stomped online so how not that it's your place to do so but how can a publisher like capcom justify releasing what sounds like a half-finished game you know honestly i'm not exactly sure I think because they, I think, I think they're, I think you're paying for the promise. Like you'll know at some point I'll have an amazing game that's finished. So you might as well start playing it now. I guess play what you can now and enjoy these couple of characters now while you're waiting for everything else to load. Yeah, but while I'm waiting for everything else to load, other games are coming out and I'm moving on to those. I'm not likely to go back to Street Fighter. Yeah, that's true. Uh, that's, that's true. I, I'm not sure. Um, hmm. You know, I'm not, I don't really know. I mean, I do appreciate the ability of games to evolve over time. I just learned in this podcast about the new features in Killer Instinct, but <laughs> I didn't need that feature, or maybe I specifically did, but most people didn't need that feature when they booted the game up a year or two ago. Right. Um, and I think, well, with that, I think it comes with, they started seeing the growth in the community, and we're like, okay, we've had a bunch of people saying, hey, I've got friends that want to play, but they're having a hard time. 
getting into it. So maybe they're like, well, here is our answer to that. Here's how we're going to like get a whole new, a whole new audience by introducing this, this like easier method. I suppose. But most people, when they're looking for a new game to play, they're not taking into account that a game was recently updated. They'll just see that Street Fighter V initially came out six months to a year ago and they'll say, oh, that's old. I want to buy something that's new. Right. Or they'll say, oh, everyone's been playing it forever. There's no point for me to get into it now. Right. And also a lot of video game websites don't review games that are six months old. They review the game when it comes out. Right. Yeah. And, and so when you look at the Metacritic score, what you're seeing is the game that launched. Yeah. Oh, well. You and I chatted briefly about an onboarding community for gaming that would be similar to the Lady Planeswalker Society, but we haven't actually gone back and talked about what the Lady Planeswalker Society is. We don't need to go too in-depth because your wife, Tifa, the founder of that organization, was on this <laughs> podcast just two months ago. Yeah. But let's talk about, uh, give me a broad description of what LPS is and your involvement in it. The Lady Planeswalker Society is a group that is welcoming to all all players, male, female, transgender, binary, genderqueer, transgender, everything, everything, you, everything you are. We provide a safe space for you to learn to play Magic the Gathering. Uh, we're sort of like the stepping stone. People that want to learn to play Magic the Gathering or people that don't necessarily want to go to F&M can come and hang out at Lady Planeswalker Society and play some games. F&M? Uh, Friday Night Magic. Oh, okay. It's sort of the uh, the weekly, you know, slightly more competitive scene for Magic. And that happens at game shops across the country? Yes. Gotcha. Cool. So you are Mr. Tifa in this community? Uh, yes, actually. In this community, I am Mr. Tifa. Tifa's got a lot on her play, obviously, with her brand new job. Uh, and she's also, you know, pregnant. So she's tired a lot more. And I've been taking sort of a bigger role to help her manage a lot of the back end stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I, I was about to say some more, and I realized I might be breaking NDAs if I say some other things. <laughs> wow, we'll save that for offline. But yeah, but anyone that knows what LPS has done for specific conventions in the past can guess what it what I'm talking about. This podcast isn't about Tifa, but her new job happened just in the two months since she was last on the show. Can you tell us about it? Uh, yeah, she is now the community program manager for Gaming for Everyone, which is a it's not an, it's not an initiative. It's a movement, a movement within. She's gonna love that I said that. It's a movement within Microsoft to make micro, the Microsoft community, internal community, and eventually external communities more diverse, open to all gamers. So she meets with a lot of uh, a lot of the internal communities within Xbox to figure out how Xbox itself can be more diverse. So her job title is social justice warrior. <laughs> her title is basically do what you did for magic for Xbox. <laughs> that sounds like the perfect job for either of you because you've both spoken on multiple PAX East panels on that topic and not just PAX East. For the, those are just the ones I've attended. Uh, yeah, this is basically the job that was created for Tifa. Like there, when this job came out, it's like you really need to apply for this job. And I wasn't the only one that said so. And people were and she said it herself that she felt like she's been working the last six years towards this I'm surprised she had to apply. I would have thought they would have just given it to her. I'm, I'm not kidding. <laughs> uh, it kind of happened that way. It was kind of like, hey, are you interested in this thing? And she's like, yeah, this sounds really neat. And they're like, okay, you, know, you may not hear anything for a while. Then I was like, oh, by the way, you have an interview loop next week. And she was like, I'm not ready for this at all. Um, so it, it happened rather quickly. She was born ready for that job. She really was. Excellent. So now that she's moving toward that and toward being a mother, what is your role with LPS? What more are you doing, if you can tell me without breaking NDA? Uh, keeping her sane, like I said. 
Uh, I'm also involved a lot more with, like I said, some of the backend stuff, email chains, uh, meetings with specific companies, um, you know, being the presence and the voice of LPS when she cannot attend. So if I have a meeting at, you know, say a trading card game company down in Renton, Washington, uh, that she cannot attend, I am there in her stead representing LPS and what LPS needs and wants. Do you have a title that goes with all this? Uh, I, I'm just sticking with Mr. Tifa. I think it's a brilliant <laughs> title. I want to see that on your business card. Uh, I have a deck box that says Lady Planeswalker Society. It's got the logo and it says Mike Robles, Mr. Tifa. That is perfect. <laughs> so are there any, again, without breaking NDA, any big projects or events that you want to plug or promote for the LPS? I uh, cannot talk about anything yet. <laughs> <laughs> Tease. Yeah. Okay. Very good. Well, let's talk about some other board games, just because we have talked about Magic a lot on this podcast in previous episodes. (laughs) So you and Tifa play a ton of board games. We play a ton of board games. And when some people, probably not the ones listening to this podcast, think of board games, they think of Monopoly, Risk, and Yahtzee. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I know I did. Yeah, because that's what I grew up with, and I kind of, I didn't necessarily fall out of love with board games. I've always enjoyed them, but it seems that there's quite a bit more to the board game scene, especially in the last 10, 20 years. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I basically didn't realize there were other board games that existed until I moved to Seattle. Like I played a couple of board games every now and then. Uh, but you know, I stuck with my, with stuck with magic when I was in California. Uh, that was, I think the most expensive board game I played risk or a variation of risk. Uh, and then I moved to, Seattle and was introduced to uh, Betrayal at the House on the Hill. I was like, oh man, this game is amazing. And then after that, uh, and I met Tifa, she introduced me to just this whole new world of other board games. Working at Wizards helped as well because I started realizing, oh my gosh, there's more than just Clue and Risk and Monopoly. Because it's it's expensive, that's for sure. And a lot of these games are being developed in Europe, Germany? Yeah, yeah, there's a lot. I mean, there's also a ton being developed uh, out here too, which is nice. Who are some of the big developers of board games in this country or in your region? Uh, well, I mean, obviously, uh, Lone Shark Games is definitely one of the biggest ones. Um, they do a lot of really good games and have put out a lot of really games. They've partnered with, you know, Wizards of the Coast, who's making D&D and D&D board games. Uh, uh, Monty Cook Games, who made the Numenera RPG, and they've done a bunch of uh, games. I think they just put out another one called uh, No Thank You Evil. Or no, no, thank you, evil, something like that. Which is essentially like a kid's storytelling game um, that's uh, role playing. So, I mean, there's definitely a lot of game, a lot of board game companies out in the states as well that are making good stuff. Yeah, I have a hard time getting people into some of these games because many of them have a lot of pieces, a lot of rules, and a lot of moving parts. It's not something that you can play on your lunch break, for example. Right. Yeah. That's that's slightly more difficult. Uh, I mean, Catan is a great sort of intro game. I think that's sort of like everyone's everyone's stepping stone game. Yeah, I found that my gaming library has evolved to accommodate my audience, which was I was running a monthly game hour at my workplace, and I had to teach them an entire game and play an entire game in just 60 minutes. So I have stuff like Snake Oil or Bananagrams or Quirkle. Oh, nice. Yeah. So those are fun, I guess what you would call party games, but then I will bring them to a dedicated board game event, and people look at my collection and say, we prefer stuff more strategic than Bananagrams. Well, at the same time, you don't want to spend 14 hours playing a game of, you know, Space Armada or whatever. There's some space game that friends of mine, oh, uh, Twilight Imperium. It's like, hey, do you have 12 hours? I'm like, no, no, I don't have 12 hours. Give me like an hour max and I'm good. 
Well, that was my experience, my one experience with Betrayal at House on the Hill. Maybe it was being run incorrectly, but it took like three to four hours to play that game. Uh, you know, that could also be part of with the, uh, the, uh, the, I guess the, uh, the, the haunt, that can be part of the haunt that happened. I mean, in, in four hours, I could play four other games. And whereas yeah. if I don't end up liking Betrayal at House on the Hill, that's a big commitment to a game I might not like. Uh, yeah, that is, that is true. I've had that happen where it's like, well, we're going to play this game for a few hours that we've never played before. So we don't know how we're going to like it. Why do you like Betrayal at House on the Hill? Uh, I really enjoy the so the first time I played it, I was like, this is really neat. I'm exploring this house. There's a bunch of creepy things. This is kind of awesome. Uh, and then the haunt happened and I was like, oh, my God, this is a totally different game now. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons I liked it so much is because it's two games in one, essentially. And it's like, wow, for, you know, you're doing all this really cool stuff where you're exploring this house. The house is always different. That's the thing I like. The house is always different. It's never the same house. The cards are never the same. You're never going to find the same card in the same room. And I think all that is really neat. And then, you know, the haunt triggers and you're like, holy crap. Now we have this amazing other thing that needs to happen, um, which I think is just something that to me, when I first played it, was it was like shocking to me. It's like, oh, my goodness, this is this is crazy. This isn't like Clue. It's like playing Clue. And then, you know, once you figured out who did it, they're like, all right, now this guy's going to try to murder the rest of you. Have you ever played Mystery Mansion? I don't think I have. It's a 1984 board game from Milton Bradley. Betrayal at House of the Hill kind of seems to me like a grown-up version of Mystery Mansion. Like, huh. Mystery Mansion is for kids, and it's st- still a lot of fun, in my opinion. But Betrayal House on the Hill just takes all of that and expands it. Interesting. No, I've never played Mystery Mansion. It sounds cool. Yeah, if you can still find it, unfortunately. It's no longer being developed. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm sure it's expensive on eBay somewhere. Yeah, that's where I had to get it, and I, I got lucky, but this was a few years ago. Who knows about now? <laughs> now, Betrayal House on the Hill originally came out around 2004. The first edition is no longer in print. There was a second edition in 2010, and yeah. just this year, six years after the second edition came out, its first ever expansion came out, Widow's Walk. Yeah. Oh, man. Well, it's not out yet, but it was announced. Oh, I'm sorry. You're right. It was announced in April, and it's coming out this fall. Yeah. But you have sort of the inside scoop on that. I have kind of an inside scoop on that. I was working at Lone Shark Games while that game was being developed. And in fact, if you look at the list of contributors, in addition to some amazing other names, there might be two other names you recognize as former guests of your show. Well, I saw at least one, of course. There's both Mike Robles and Tifa Robles, uh, <laughs> Anita Sarkeesian, Zoe Quinn has been on my show, uh, Jerry Holkins from Penny Arcade, Max Temkin. That is a veritable who's who of the gaming industry. It is amazing. Uh, I believe Mike Selinker has gone on podcast and said that he basically did the 10 Cloverfield Lane version of board games where all of a sudden, out of nowhere, it was like, hey, this amazing thing with this amazing with all these amazing people ha- is happening. Guess what? Which I think is probably one of the best descriptions of it. Um, so, yeah, I got to work on that while at Lone Shark Games. Steve and I have, uh, in, a, in my opinion, an amazing contribution to the game. Uh, so it's a ton of fun. I presume NDA prevents you from telling me what that contribution is. Correct. It does for now. Okay. Now, you said you were working at Lone Shark Games, but I thought Betrayal at House on the Hill was from Avalon Hill. Uh, it was, but since Mike Selinker was one of the original designers of the original Betrayal, they reached out to him and said, hey, how would, we'd like to partner with Lone Shark Games on this. And Mike was like, absolutely. So he had been working at Avalon Hill, but left to create his own company? He was working, uh, yes, he was working at Avalon Hill, which was owned by Wizards. Uh, and then, yeah, they went and did... He went into his his Lone Shark stuff, which he's still doing. Excellent. It's really impressive how he got together that list of individuals, because not all of them would necessarily pop to the top of my head as board game experts. For example, 
I don't believe Feminist Frequency has really done much about board games on their video series, yet he reached out to Anita Sarkeesian. Uh, yeah, Mike knows a lot of people. <laughs> it's really fascinating to imagine what all the different contributions that these individuals could have made would have been, and I, I don't know if we'll ever get to be able to pick it apart and say, oh, this person did this, this person did that, but it's just cool to be playing a game with their name among the credits. Yeah, yeah, that's that. That is definitely for sure. Uh, when we saw the initial list, uh, Tifa and I were kind of floored at uh, you know the list of people our names get to appear next to. Have you had your credits in a game before? Um, y- not to this degree. Uh, I've never been able to say that I designed something. I've play tested a bunch of stuff. I've helped with that. So like, I've got credits in Magic. You know, deep, deep. In like the deep section of magic, where it's like play testers, you know, but never, never to this point. Well, congratulations, sir. Thanks. Will this be a stepping stone for you? Or are you going to become a board game designer? Uh, you know, after working at Lone Shark and seeing how much is involved, I think I'm fine. I, I will pass. <laughs> I know there are a lot of people going on Kickstarter thinking that they can make their own. <laughs> that's that's true, and I wish all those people the best of luck. I am fine. <laughs> Being a stay-at-home dad, working part-time for Take This, and playing Overwatch when I can. So what board games are you playing nowadays? As we mentioned, this expansion isn't out yet, so what's filling the time until then? Uh, Tifa and I love the game Dead of Winter. I don't know if you've heard of that game or not. Uh, I've never heard of it. Dead of Winter is what we, what we lovingly call the most human zombie game we've ever played. It is a... Zombie game where you are a group of survivors within a colony and there is one sort of big team objective that you're like, we need as a group to do this in X number of rounds. And then during each round as well, there is some like mini emergency, like somebody's sick. So we need to get a bunch of medicine or we need to get a bunch of food or something like that. Or we need to build, you know, make the compound, the complex like, you know, sturdy because it's going to be like a harsh winter. Um, at the same time, you have your own secret objective. There is a small chance that somebody may be betraying the group that you don't know, uh, which is also a little fun twist. And you play, you have a bunch of different characters as you play. It's like a deck of cards that are characters, and you play as one of those characters. In addition to all of that, there is what's known as the Crossroads deck, where every turn, somebody, whoever's turn it is, they will have to make some sort of decision. And like my favorite, my favorite examples of this are uh, when you move from location to location, you have to roll for exposure. You may find a zombie, you may catch a cold, who knows. But one of the cards is you found a horse. You can keep the horse and never have to roll for exposure again when you move from location to location, but you need more food every turn because at the end of a round, you have to make sure there's enough food to feed everybody. Or you can kill the horse and get a ton of food right now. And I think like that's a really good thing because you're making that person – you're making this person make this decision. It's like will this person risk exposure at the cost of getting more food from for the group or are they willing to risk everybody else starving because they don't want to roll for exposure as they move from location to location? Those are the kind of difficult moral decisions that I would expect from the upcoming This War of Mine board game. Oh, man. Oh, geez. Yeah, I probably I, w- I would not be surprised. Are you a fan of that game, the computer game? Uh, yeah, I actually played it on Xbox One uh, not too long ago. They, they had an Xbox One version of it. Um, it was this war of mine, the little ones. And man, did that game that game got me at, at points. Yeah, I played it a few times and I, I loved it. But at the same time, 
I'm not sure how often I can be asked to make those decisions. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Like when I was when I played Life is Strange, that game had some amazingly powerful decisions, and in my let's play, you can just hear me like torturing myself over making the right one. <laughs> and I wouldn't want to go through that again. I'm super excited that I got to go through it once, but a second time would just be I don't know too much. Yeah, yeah, no, that makes sense. What I like about Dead of Winter is not all the decisions are that like that morally opposed. Sometimes it's like, oh, there's this pirate guy who wants to like he's like he just wants to join you, but he's gonna be a jerk the whole time. And it's like if he joins you, he's a jerk for the rest of the game. Otherwise you just say no thanks. And you're like, well we just say no thanks. Like thank thanks, keep a move on pirate, like it's fine. They're they're not all crazy, which is nice. So speaking of making difficult decisions on a more serious note, you recently got a new job moving on from Lone Shark Games to work with Take This. Yeah, 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 I did. Uh, I've I've known Russ uh, and the Take This uh, team for quite some time. And as I was prepping to stay at home, work from a home dad, there was possibly an opportunity for me to have gone to E3, um, but I wasn't really sure. So I reached out to Russ and I said, hey, Russ, uh, I might be coming to E3. Like, would you like some help? It's like, yeah, that sounds great. He and I was like, hey, actually, I'm not going to be going to E3 after all. However, I would still like to work a ton with Take This. Um, and he was like, yeah, absolutely. And for those that don't know, TakeThis.org is a group that seeks to inform the community, specifically gamers, but they inform the community about mental health issues and provide education about mental disorders, mental awareness, mental illness prevention. They provide the AFK rooms at PAX. Uh, which is a huge stepping stone. I actually just got AFK room at E3, which I think it's a, it's a place where you can go get away from the hustle and bustle of everything, have a nice quiet spot to sit down and like get away from everything, which I think is really nice. And that was their first time at E3, I believe. It was, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's huge. Yeah. So you are working social media with them? You're doing Twitter and Facebook, Google+, Instagram, Pinterest? Uh, yes, yes. No, 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 no. <laughs> For now, yeah. Uh, and then we're going to be working some other stuff that'll be coming down the pipeline. Uh, the, the wonderful thing about Take This, even though I can, there's a bunch of wonderful things, and I love Rust to Death, is I have joined Take This with the absolute complete knowledge that I will be a stay at home dad and will only be able to work from home part time. And Russ is like, that's completely fine with me. You know, we're going to make it work. We just want to have you on board. So it's awesome. I have been working for the last four years in healthcare, including social media, and I have found that it's a very challenging intersection to work at because you have to be very careful about what you're saying, who you're representing, whether or not it's factually accurate, and how it's worded. But we started this podcast by saying that your experience with improv helps you to be very nimble as a community manager. So how can you be nimble while working in social media healthcare? Uh, you know, it's it, like you said, it's pretty difficult. Um, we spend a lot of time when we're not doing AFK room stuff um, or asking people to come and like take a break, just sort of educating. Um, there's a lot of blog posts on the website. Uh, Geek and Sundry offers um, some content from us as well. Um, and we spend a lot more time amplifying messages and responding to people as well as promoting articles. They're like, hey, here's this interesting thing about mental health and you know, mental awareness that maybe you don't know about uh, because you're right. It's, it's slightly more difficult to discuss sort of these, you know, sensitive issues out this way. So we do our best to sort of just be like, Hey, here are some links to some resources that may help you. 
We've talked a lot about your background in the gaming industry. I didn't hear any mention of a background in mental health care, for example. Do you find yourself having to consult when interacting with the Take This community, or how do you know what to say? Um, so I don't really have a background in mental health care, but I am a very – that's the right way to say this. Um, I don't say anything to anyone that I, I – I don't try to offer answers. Um, if someone's like, I'm having a really bad day, you know, and, and they tweet it, take this, which is like, hey, you're not alone. Like there's a community of people out there. Um, and I think that comes from being a community manager and from being um, so public-facing with a lot of stuff. Um, I'm a very friendly person. Um, I care about a lot of people. Um, if someone's like, oh, man, I'm having a really hard day and it's just like a vague tweet on Twitter, I'll send a direct message and be like, hey, is everything OK? Like, do you need someone to talk to? You know, I will always provide an ear for someone. And so while I may not be there to solve problems, I am there to listen. And I do find myself looking for resources and being like, hey, maybe this is a a, a place you can talk to. Maybe there's maybe this number you can call if you're starting to have these these thoughts. You know, it's just. My wanting to help with take this is because I care and I want people to I want to do what I can to help people, especially because the gaming world is so loud. It's so overwhelming. There is so much out there that is happening that you never really know. It's hard to find yourself. It's hard to like sort of tune out that noise. So it sounds like the skills that you need for this job are a empathy and B. I don't know if you want to call it Google Foo or just knowing what the right resources are. (laughs) It's it's knowing what the right resources are. Luckily, take this. The website uh, has great resources. You've said that sometimes you'll send somebody a DM if they're having a hard day. Does take this ever initiate the conversation, or is it more important for the person to come to you first? Uh, I send the DM from my personal account. Um, if it's a friend of mine that's having a hard day, uh, usually with take this, um, we've got you know a couple of people that are working the account, so someone more qualified than me. I, I may say, hey, you know, this person's having a hard time. Is there something we can do? Um, you know, I'll pass that off, especially with Take This. I would, I would rather want someone more qualified than me representing Take This um, when it comes to, you know, supporting versus, you know, a friend of mine being like, I can use hugs today. And we'd be like, hey, is everything okay? Because a friend, I think, would open up to me more than, you know, if, if a company reached out to them. So if I had a friend who was having a challenging time, do I... DM them and suggest they approach take this? Do I DM you and suggest that you approach them? I mean, it depends on what, what the challenging time is. I mean, you can also just go to the take this website and there's, you know, we've got a great article. that's like how to be a friend, you know, and there's, and there's great links and resources there. Um, and you know, and you can talk to someone and if it's, if it starts to get a little bit overwhelming, you can be like, Hey, have you heard of take this? There's a lot of people that tweet us. They're like, have you heard of take this? Like they, they help with, you know, mental awareness and people won't talk to us, but they'll be like, Oh, I'm looking into it. And I found these articles on your website and I'm really like, I'm feeling better. That's great. I'll include links in the show notes to all the resources you just mentioned. Do you have any sort of fundraisers coming up? I know take this, this is looking quite a bit ways ahead now does a live stream around Thanksgiving slash black Friday. Is there anything else coming up? Any uh, AFK rooms or fundraisers you want to mention? Take this. You can always only take this. Uh, they partner with Amazon, with Amazon Smile, so you can like look up, you know, Amazon Smile. And if you're just doing your shopping on Amazon, um, if you do the smile.amazon.com, you can pick your charity and you can give to take this um, through there. Um, I don't think there's anything else in the pipeline coming up. You'll probably be at PAX Prime next month, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. Take this will be at PAX Prime. I may not because babies do right around then. So right. Yeah. Let's talk about that. You're gonna have your hands pretty darn full pretty soon. Yeah, I am. That is definitely a thing <laughs> happening. Are you looking forward to being a stay-at-home dad? 
I really am, actually. I, I am super excited for it. I hope you haven't overestimated how accomplished or productive you can be while taking care of a little one. Uh, no, not at all. <laughs> I assume I'll get nothing done. <laughs> I think that's very wise. I've seen that happen in my own family. So how are you preparing yourself? I mean, I'm sure there are the things that every new parent has to do, like remodel the house, for example. You know, it's crazy. It's definitely a crazy, crazy lifestyle. We're definitely like, I got a bunch of like wires connected to all my like video game consoles. So I'm going to buy some zip ties and tie those up and make sure, you know, those are out of reach. Obviously, you're going to board up, you know, any place where there's chemicals under the sink. We'll buy some door latches so that, you know, and, th- and that's down the ways. Like our baby's not going to come out crawling and instantly looking for poison. Which is, which is good. <laughs> I would hope not. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That would be a very talented baby. That would be. Yeah. That would be. So you're going to find time for Overwatch and Lady Planeswalker Society and all the other many games like Widow's Walk somewhere, somehow, even though you're not going to be getting any sleep at night? That's the plan. Uh, Tiff and I want to start uh, family game nights. I've got, uh, I've got my cousin and her husband that live up here. Uh, one of my best friends, who's like my brother, lives not too far from here. Um, and our plan is to sort of start these family game nights in these next few months uh, as we get closer to babies born. That way they're already sort of uh, prepped and ready to go. Uh, that way when the baby comes, they can still come over and help out. Uh, we've also got – Tifa's got a ton of her family up here. Um, so they're all super close, uh, which makes things uh, a lot nicer and easier for us because we know that we've got that ready to go. We've got a great support network of friends who are like, we will come and babysit anytime you want, which is awesome. It's very important to have a community around you because it really does take a village. It, it, yeah, yeah, it does. So you have in your portfolio fighting games, board games, Magic the Gathering, improv. You've transitioned to a part-time job, and that's going to free up some time, but can you maintain everything else, or is something going to have to give? Uh, I, I, you know... I try to do what I can as much as I can. I actually, so I haven't been doing improv as much. Um, I took a step back. Uh, improv was taking a lot of extra time that I was not able to do. So I know I've already taken a step back from improv. I've done some uh, improv at, uh, you know, conventions, uh, MCing and hosting gigs are a lot like improv. So there, there's, there's that. But as a whole, I'm just going to keep trying to do what I can whilst I can do it. Well, best of luck to you, sir. Thanks. Yeah. Uh, at at the same time, I'm also trying to do uh, video content. Like I'll stream every once in a while. Uh, I've been pretty bad at it because things have gotten crazier. I, I try to do some video content, some YouTube stuff. Uh, like I said, when I can. That's right. You did plug your YouTube channel earlier in the show. What sort of content can listeners find there? Uh, so on the YouTube channel, Tifa and I, we haven't done a video in a very long time, but we were doing game reviews um, and doing. Uh, uh, so we were, we were doing game reviews, um, unboxings, stuff like that on that channel. On my personal channel, um, I'm doing some game reviews. Uh, I stream highlights. Um, I did a video uh, about Overwatch tips with a buddy of mine. We worked together and collaborated on that. So, um, you know, that's one of the things that we've been working on. I want to make some more. I want to make more content. I like taking. Uh, stream highlights and putting those up there because uh, I have a ton of fun doing it. Uh, I'm working on the script for a video uh, based around the game Mighty Number no. Nine because I want to talk a little bit about that. Uh, so you know, it's just like discussion points. And my my personal channel, I have like talking points and discussion points. I talk about the fighting game community. Can you give us a sneak peek into what you thought about Mighty Number no. Nine? I love it. Really, you're the first person I've heard say that. I don't understand the hate, and I, that's what my video is about. Like, huh? It's as I don't get why people hate it so much. Were you a Kickstarter backer? I was not. 
huh, I wonder if that has something to do with it. It might be. I was a Kickstarter backer, and I actually, even though I have the game, I haven't played it yet just because I've been so busy. And my, it's in my backlog. Ah. I certainly will be playing it, but unfortunately I have read some of the reviews, and it kind of, as a result, fell lower into my backlog as a result. I think my problem with the game is everyone's like, oh, it's not Mega Man. And I'm like, yeah, it's not Mega Man. Like, I don't know why you expected Mega Man, <laughs> and that's... And I think that's what my biggest gripe with the reviews on are. I was like, yeah, it is. It's Mega Man-esque. But I knew going in that I wasn't expecting Mega Man. I wonder if that's a marketing issue because they had so many Mega Man references in the Kickstarter pitch video. And then there's also Bloodstained, which is supposed to be like Castlevania. I wonder if people are expecting these creators to stick to their niche. Uh, I think so. And I wonder whose fault that is. Right? I think it's gamers' fault. Uh, I don't know if you saw uh, any of the E3 press conferences. Uh, so I don't know if you saw the the Sony press conference, but Sony press conference was like, what up? We got Kojima. He's going to bring out this brand new game. And it was like, all right, cool. Here's a preview game. And they're like, oh, by the way, I got Norman Reedus back because we all know you wanted that Silent Hill game that we didn't get to do. So now here's this creepy S game that looks very similar to the Silent Hill game. And I'm wondering if part of that is because they still want to make the game that they wanted to make or if because fans are like, we still want our Silent Hill game. I wonder if gamers will get what they're hoping for. I Yeah, and me, I'm like, I don't care. I'm like, Kojima and Redis are working together on something creepy. That is all I need. Right. You know, I never actually played PT, the demo. Oh, my God, it's so good. It's still on, it's still on my PS4. I will never delete it. Again, it's actually on my PS4, too. I downloaded it before they removed it. It's just That's in great. my backlog. You need to play it. I you will. I will. Well, what, what, this is the stupidest excuse ever, but I only play horror games when it's dark out. And right now, in the middle of summer, it's bright until like 10 p.m., that's that's fine. And so by the time I'm ready to play the game, I'm also ready to go to bed. Yeah, yeah, it's true. But, you know, like come December when it's dark at like 4 p.m., maybe then I'll be playing it. Yeah, that's that seems fine. Anyway, so I have kept you so long talking about so many things. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, no problem. I had a blast. I will always talk forever because <laughs> I like I like to do that. Well, as do I, and I appreciate the opportunity to listen. <laughs> Remind our listeners where to find you online. You can find me on Twitter at the Mike Robles. Uh, that's also my gamer tag on Xbox Live. If you want to add me on Xbox Live and hang out, uh, which is always fun, you can find me on YouTube, YouTube.com/slash Mike and Tifa, uh, with and that's the channel with me and my wife, or YouTube.com/slash Mike Robles, spelled M-I-C-R-O-B-L-E-S-S. Because I'm usually pretty active on Twitter, so if you got any questions, want to bug me on Twitter, hit me up, whatever. I usually respond. Excellent. Links to all these will be in the show notes, which can be found at polygamer.net. Mike, thank you so much for your time. Hey, no problem. Thank you, Ken. This has been Polygamer, a GameBits production. Find more episodes, read our blog, or send feedback at polygamer.net. You won't, you won't have the feels every single turn. And my gardeners are here. That's awesome. <laughs> I was wondering what that was. It sounded like you were taking off. No, gardeners decided they wanted to show up today. No, it's, it's very subtle. It's not an issue. Okay. All right. That's awesome.